everybody. How are we all doing? I'm Michael, joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And this is Fallen Through Plot Holes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. And we are on part two of our series on Shenmue, the entire series, one, two, and three. Use Suzuki's grand opus that involves China, martial arts, a dude named Landy, and I don't know, maybe opening up a lot of drawers and being disappointed at what's inside of them. Uh, last time we left off, we ended up going over the development history of Shenmue 1 and 2. So if you want to listen to that, you can definitely check that out in part 1. Today, we're going to be going over the plot of Shenmue 1 and 2, uh, since they were both developed at the same time. Uh, it seemed like just a good idea to get those knocked out and a lickety split. Alex, uh, how you how you feeling today? I'm feeling all right. Good, 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 good. I got over a sinus infection, which is why we did not record last week. In case people are at home are wondering, huh, weird, no episode. <laughs> mm. I got sick and was like, I, I can't write an episode. I just yeah. need to sleep. Yeah, do, fair. And from what I understand, Alex, you're feeling a little bit under the weather yourself. A little bit, yeah. Uh, yeah. Had a bit of a cold earlier this week. Seems mostly knocked out, but keeping mm. an eye on it. Yeah, yeah. So this is going to be an interesting episode, needless to say. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it's going to be a good one, because honestly, I'm pretty darn excited to talk about Shenmue 1 and 2. I am too. Yeah, so uh, how we're going to handle this is that Shenmue 1 in particular is the game whose plot you can honestly knock out really darn quick, because a lot of the appeal of the original Shenmue is honestly mindlessly wandering around and asking people about, hey, do you know where Chinese people live? <laughs> and sailors? Question mark? Hmm. If you actually really know what you're doing in Shenmue, it, you can get that game done actually really quickly. As I have found out, because I over uh, over the last weekend when I was sick, I actually tried to replay Shenmue 1. Mm. Uh, something that actually proved to be a huge mistake. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Oddly enough, not because I think the game's bad nowadays. But because mm. I bought the uh, Shenmue HD collection on Steam, and Ooh. it turns out it does this really weird thing where just it will randomly completely reassign all your controller functions uh, huh. halfway through playing it. Huh. And then it will reassign it back to the original configuration, and it will decide on an entirely new configuration about a minute later. <laughs> that's uh, That's unique. It's a very unique bug, and it has worked with every controller I've tried, whether it's D-input, X-input, whatever. Hmm. Um, what's very funny, though, doesn't reassign them if you're playing the Sega Arcade Classics, so I can still beat Space Harrier. <laughs> so okay. I, I accomplished everything I wanted to do in that, and then yeah. went, well, I guess if I want to play this, I probably should just emulate the Dreamcast version. Yeah, probably so. But yeah, so... Alex, if I remember correctly, uh, you have not played through Shenmue. I have not. I believe I own was Shenmue 2 on the Dreamcast? Uh, in Japan and Europe, so... Okay, then I probably own Shenmue 1, because I own whatever's on the Dreamcast. Yeah, so you but, own Shenmue 1, but... Yeah, but I, I've, I've never taken the time to, to actually play it, because it seemed like a massive time sink the first time you play it. Yes, th th this is accurate. So are you familiar with the plot at all? Um, the bare strokes of it. Hmm. Okay, then. I think you're going to enjoy this because okay. it is it's a game plot that is honestly very point A to point B. Mm -hmm. uh, honestly, pretty grounded throughout it. 
until it all of a sudden becomes not. <laughs> mm, right. So we might as well just go ahead and jump on in there and just start talking about this. So Shenmue begins on November 29th, 1986 in the Japanese town of Yokosuka. Now, it starts on an abnormally snowy day as we see our protagonist, Ryo Hazuki, determinedly running back to his home, the Hazuki Dojo. Upon arriving there, he sees his family nameplate is broken on the ground. A black town car is near, and an obvious struggle has occurred at the front gates. He finds his home's housekeeper, Ine Hayata, on the ground. Checking on her, she tells him Hazuki-sensei, his father, is in trouble. Passing by his house and walking back to the dojo, he immediately sees one of his father's students, and actually kind of his own father's only student, Masayuki Fukuhara, get dramatically thrown from the building. Walking inside, Ryo is immediately restrained by two men in black suits as he watches his father, Iwao Hazuki, battle with a man dressed in a green silk Chinese suit. This man is known as Lan Di. Lan Di demands Iwao, or Hazuki-sensei, hand over an item known as the Dragon Mirror, though Hazuki-sensei refuses to reveal where it is. So they get into, like, a fight, and at first it's even for about, oh, let's say 15 seconds, and then Hazuki-sensei just gets his ass handed to him. Hmm. Now, Ryo tries to intervene in the battle after his father is injured, but then Landi literally just, like, knocks him to the ground easily. Right. So, he then lifts Ryo off the ground and threatens to kill him uh, if he's not given the mirror. So, because of that, Azuki-sensei reveals that it's buried under the cherry blossom tree. After Landi's henchmen recover the mirror, Landi then mentions a man named Su Ming Zhao. He asks him if he knows who he is. And he, le- he tells him that he was allegedly killed in a rural Chinese village of Moonswoon. Do you remember Chao Sun Ming? Chao? That's the name of the man you killed in Moonswoon. It can't be you. Get up. I'll allow you to die like a warrior. Uh, previous episode, I uh, mispronounced this as Ming Kun. Mm-hmm. Which uh, made me very sad when I watched the cutscenes for this again and saw that it was pronounced Moon Swoon. I was like, oh. oh. I, worked so, I worked so hard to get these Chinese pronunciations right. And yeah, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. It's difficult for English speakers. Indeed, indeed. So Hazuki-sensei hears this and he's shocked. He says, it can't be you? And then Landi tells him to get up as he wishes him to die as a warrior. And so Landi just hits him in the chest with a deadly blow and he and his men leave. Ryo then drags himself over to Hazuki-sensei, who apologizes for leaving him alone and tells him to keep friends close to you. He then dies shortly after in Ryo's arms, and the snow dramatically turns to a rainy thunderstorm. So right away, they're like really laying on like the dramatic tension in this mm-hmm. entire scene. Like, you know, like the, like the effects of the rain falling, the thunderstorm and everything the way the scene is actually, like, shot and whatnot. There's, like, a lot of, like, blur effects that are going on in this. Mm -hmm. They do a really good job of just being like, hey, listen, this is something that's very dramatic that's happening. This is going to be a very formative event in Rio's life. Right. It's a a really well-done scene. It really gets you into it. Of like, man, we're about to go get a revenge. Yeah, it's a good, like, kung fu movie revenge plot set up. It absolutely is, which is going to make it incredibly funny when the next four hours is spent 
randomly bumbling around town. <laughs> so this is maybe the weirdest part of Shinmu hmm. is the just stark dichotomy of its various elements. Yeah. Is like okay, Yu Suzuki wanted to make this super immersive life simulator sort of just be in a place and absorb its life. Mm-hmm. But then it's also a kung fu movie. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. But and yeah, they, these don't work together at all in this. It's funny because Shenmue 2 is going to do a so much better job at like mm-hmm. striking a balance. Right. And I think it's mostly because somebody told you, Suzuki, that no, every <laughs> chapter can't be its own game. <laughs> right. You and need so, to compress this a little bit. Yeah. And so you have a much, a much bigger like, OK, we're just going from event to event. And it's not just like you've got to wander around. Just figure this out, man. Right. And yeah, so because of that, it ends up working so much better. But here, yeah, you have this dramatic scene happen. And it's like, you, you want to take care of this kid? It's like, I uh, I, I thought I, I, I was guess. getting revenge on my, uh, for my father. Hmm, and all right. I, I guess I can sort of see the idea behind it is like, if you want to truly understand like a a martial arts philosophy, you can't just be about fighting all the time. Mm-hmm. That's like yeah. general, generally regarded as the wrong way to go about things. You need to ground yourself in life and mm-hmm. being, I guess, one with the world around you. Yeah. Yeah, but totally. Yeah, totally. It, it also makes for this really weird pacing. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, funnily enough, another thing that actually does a much better job of establishing this is the kind of out-of-nowhere Shenmue anime that was made a couple years ago. Huh. Between Crunchyroll and Adult Swim. <laughs> okay, yeah, that honestly, that that is out-of-nowhere, but also makes complete sense. It totally does, yeah. Adult Swim, the same people who gave us a second season of Big O for some reason. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, actually to- totally in their wheelhouse when you yeah. really sit down and think about it. But yeah, like, so... Four days pass after all this happens, and Ine-san receives a letter addressed to Hazuki-sensei. As Ryo, still recovering from his injuries, awakens from a dream of Landi killing his father. Ryo is then instilled with a desire for revenge above all else. And he decides that from that day forward, he is going to find his father's killer. But before we get into all that, I think we need to kind of talk about Ryo Hazuki and his family. Hmm. Ryo Hazuki is an 18-year-old martial artist and high school senior. Uh, now high school dropout. <laughs> he wears a white t-shirt and blue jeans and has a brown leather jacket with a stylized tiger on its back. Like, he's actually kind of like one of the most plainly dressed um, main characters I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Which is honestly kind of part of his charm. Mm. That jacket also is very, very popular online in like Etsy shops and whatnot. Right, of course. Uh, You'll happily know that a bunch of people, including Sega themselves, have tried to recreate this jacket and they all look weird. <laughs> Some people have like made it like felt jackets out of it. It's like that felt is not he's not wearing felt. But anyway, right. uh, Ryo's mother, Akane Hazuki, died of an illness when he was three and his father basically raised him by himself or at least alongside the Hazuki's live in housekeeper in Asan. Ryo is an incredibly blunt man with poor people skills. Mm. Often taking things literally or just being socially awkward around strangers. Mm. Uh, something that will be a problem as he has to interrogate everyone in town. Right. There's a really, some of these conversations are really funny. Like one of the, 
one of the first set of people that you can actually question are like some middle school girls who are like clearly delinquents. And he just like immediately just start yelling at him that cat they're gonna cut him. And he was just like, I, uh, mm, I see. Uh, mm, I'm just gonna walk away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor, poor guy. He just, I, I feel him. I used to be that way. Yeah. So he generally just doesn't seem to connect well with his peers or adults, is basically what I'm getting at. Uh-huh. Though he does well with kids and animals. Definitely pay attention to this. It's going to be a trait that's going to be shared with another character near the end of today's episode. Mm -hmm. With all that being said, Ryo does have friends around his age, such as Naoyuki Ito, who has a rad motorcycle, uh, Ichiro Sakurada, who has a cool jacket and kind of nothing else, Uh. and he sort of has a girlfriend in Nozomi Harasaki. Ryo has an incredibly strong sense of justice, sometimes a bit too strong, as if he's wronged, he will go out of his way to right set wrong, even if it's clearly a lot more work than it's worth it. Mm. Uh, this also means that if he sees anybody being mildly bullied, he is going to go over there and he is going to karate their ass to the ground. Right. So after his dream and he wakes up, he exits his room only to run into Ine-san. So talk about Ine-san a little bit, because she's going to factor pretty prominently in the story, or at least prominently enough. Uh, Ine Hayata is a 64-year-old woman who is the Hazuki's live-in housekeeper. She was hired right after Ryo's mother died to basically just help out. Mm-hmm. She is basically Ryo's surrogate mother uh, to the point that she gives him an allowance every day of 500 yen, which is not a lot. Right. And will actually like get on Ryo's case if he comes home late. She is very reserved and deferential to Ryo, mm-hmm. but cares deeply for his safety. A lot of people who played Shenmue back in the day, like mistook her for like his mother or grandmother Uh, mm -hmm. because like she literally just acts like his mom right uh but no she is just totally like the live-in housekeeper and it was something i only later learned like like later it's something actually you would learn if you have access to the shenmue passport that came with it um a cd that only works if you have an online connection with your dreamcast (laughs) (laughs) which uh great great decision on your part Mm -hmm. there sega could have just maybe put that in the manual, but okay. Yeah, yeah, or just let the CD work offline. Or that. Yeah, it was something that it updated frequently with new characters being added, and Shenmue 2 would have characters that were added in there uh, when that game came out. Yeah, it was uh, It was a great idea for a system uh-huh. that uh, would have lasted longer than two years. Yeah. So, Ryo asks uh, Inesan if uh, Fukusan is okay, which he says he is, and he's practicing in a dojo. Ryo decides to check up on him because he has some questions about the incident. By the way, I'm being very formal about all these names because that's exactly how they're pronounced and said in the game. Right. And so I literally just default to all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not me just trying to be a weird weeb or anything like that. It's the way Yu Suzuku wanted it to be. Exactly. And thus, y'all get to enjoy it as well. <laughs> so let's talk about Fukusan. Masayuki Fukuhara is a 26-year-old a former student of Iwao Hazuki, and former in the sense that his sensei is now dead. Right. It's unknown how long he's been there, but in general, Fukusan is like the brother Ryo never had. He's also aggressively mediocre. <laughs> he's not particularly good at karate, he's not super smart, and he's not particularly good with people. For instance, he has a crush on a hostess named Aki- Akimi Sado, 
uh, and will often go to her bar to just drink and not quite talk to her. Ah, <laughs> uh, yay. Yeah. In general, he's kind of thought of as a joke, with Yu Suzuki once jokingly saying his IQ was around 87. All of this being said that he's just kind of a good guy who really, really wants to help, even if he's bad at it, and he's bad at it. <laughs> this sort of seems like the theme of the entire dojo. Yeah, it's funny because, like, uh, Ryo's home is, like, very impressive. It's a very large mm-hmm. home. It has a really nice dojo. It's filled with, like, you know, really, like, old stuff that his family has collected throughout the years and whatnot. And then you're like, oh, wow, Azuki-sensei had, like, one student, if you don't include his son. Uh, you never hear about any other students. And his one student is just kind of terrible and just kind of hanging out there. Yeah. Yeah, it it makes you wonder, like, how did they earn money? Oh, maybe that was going to come up in later chapters. Maybe. Azuki-sensei found buried Chinese gold, and he's just been sure. living off of that or something. Yeah. I don't know. He is going to come across a lot of very strange uh, ancient artifacts that may have severe implications. So, hey, you know, it's actually not out of the realm of possibility. So... Ryo goes up to him and asks about Landy and the suits that were with him. And, like, Fukusan's like, I have no idea what was going on with them. They just threw me out of the dojo. They won the mirror. They killed your dad. It was really scary. And Ryo's like, okay, cool. Uh, if you remember anything, let me know. And Fukusan's like, hey, you're not actually going to go after them, are you? And Ryo tells him sternly, he has to do this. He has to have revenge for his father. Ryo-san, where are you going? You're not going after them. They killed my father right in front of me. I will have my revenge. I need to do this for my father. It should be noted that uh, once again, Corey Marshall is the voice actor for Rio. And mm-hmm. I said last episode that he's replaced in Shenmue 3. That's not true. Oh. He's one of the few people that's actually brought back. Huh. Uh, he says this in the most monotone way. He's just like. Right. I have to get revenge from my father. It's like, it put a little more emotion in that one. <laughs> but yeah, dramatic music plays and he walks on out. He's like, I got to go talk to the people and search about, about this black car. So that's his first clue. He goes to talk to some of his neighbors. And though leads are few and far between, Ryo does get a break when he runs into Megumi, a five-year-old girl who's taking care of a kitten at a local shrine. I want to dive into this scene a little bit more because it's one of the few scenes in the game where Ryo is not played like a robot. Mm. Um, I'll be playing this for listeners at home. Uh, I'll probably go ahead and edit this in, but Ryo basically has a much softer and more natural voice in this scene as he interacts with Megumi. Like, he talks like a normal person. Hey, yeah. Hi, Megumi. Uh, you got a kitten in there? You promise not to tell my mommy? Sure. Is this your kitten? Uh-uh. But this kitty, see? She's all alone. All alone? Mm-hmm. And I gotta give Corey Marshall actually a lot of credit for this. He does a really good job this scene of, like, really showing that Ryo connects with children and animals a lot more. So he talks to Megumi about how sad this kitten's mom got ran over and, you know, how tiny it is and whatnot. And my point being with all of this is that Ryo's voice actor here does, like, a legit good job here. And Megumi mm-hmm. reveals, like, oh, yeah, the kitten was ran over by the black car. He's like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, some people in the town nearly got ran over, too. 
And so Ryo slowly makes progress in his investigation, interviewing all over, people all over Yokosuka for this. Mm-hmm. Like, what happened with this black car. Now, one of these people that he runs into is Nozomi Harasaki. Nozomi is an 18-year-old woman with short brown hair. She wears a plaid skirt with a very nice white turtleneck sweater. I really like her sweater. Mm. She works in her grandmother's flower shop, and she basically is a very world-traveled person already. Uh, she lived in Vancouver, Canada for a little bit when she was younger. She's fluent in English and Japanese and wants to grow up to be a translator. Uh, Nozomi's personality is actually very similar to Ryo's. She's reserved and not necessarily good around people, but she has a very strong sense of justice and will happily stand up for anyone being bullied or otherwise maligned. She's also basically Ryo's girlfriend, a fact mm. that is known to everyone except somehow Ryo himself. <laughs> The relationship can be summed up by Nozomi asking Ryo, what's wrong? And Ryo stammering something about being all right before awkwardly walking away like a robot. Ryo, have things settled down for you any? Yeah. If there's anything I can do, be sure to let me know. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, Nozomi... Nozomi's basically there to help point you in the right direction if you can't figure out what to do. And then later she is going to get kidnapped. So, ah, okay. gotta bring her up now. She does tell Ryo that Tom, the local hot dog salesman, they had an mm-hmm. argument with people in the black car. So we're not going to talk about Tom too much. He is my favorite character in this game. <laughs> he, is an Af- he is an African-American man who just decided to live in Japan with his girlfriend. Uh, sell for hot a dogs. While. And sell hot dogs, yeah, and just basically dance all day. You know what? Okay, Tom's also my favorite character so far. He is. He is the best. He yep. is the worst voice actor, but he is the <laughs> best. Hey, Rio. No, no, I don't remember. They might have been the ones who murdered my father. Your father? Try asking Chinese people about Chinese. <laughs> he also later teaches you like an incredible like uh, martial arts move called the tornado kick, which is like how did you know that, Tom? I don't understand. It's. It, I'm guessing it's like a breakdance kick. It sort of is. It's more like basically you do a jumping like high kick that causes you to spin around twice. Ah. It is the most impractical looking martial arts move, but it's also like the coolest looking move. It's really, really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom also... I guess we are going to talk about Tom at this point. Tom also is like the person who gives whenever you see like um, clips of like, oh, man, you're going to go do this weird thing in Shenmue, like ask about sailors and whatnot. It's usually Tom, the one who's going to tell you to do that. It's like, try asking about sailors. I heard they're in bars. (laughs) Okay, I got to bring this up. And this is this is. Maybe a little bit of a touchy topic, so I hmm. I apologize. Um, there is a trope which I'm going, I believe, is best referred to as like the I'm going to refer to as the magical black man. Oh in, yeah, yeah. In um, uh, typically in American media, and it's it is kind of viewed as like this really sketchy racist trope, which is like, oh, you have the older black man who. If if the white protagonist is in trouble or having, you know, consternation, can go to them and they're like this jolly person who can point them in the right direction and give them what they need to, like, sort of move forward in the story. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. And again, it's sort of like this touchy old old school trope that's like sort of grounded in this very racist cinema. Mm-hmm. Except whenever anime does it, it's the best. <laughs> it is, yeah. It's-, it's kind of the best when anime does it every mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty alright. It, it doesn't happen often in anime as well. Not so- super often. Like, it's not like, yeah, like American cinema where, like, literally half of Morgan Freeman's roles in his mm-hmm. entire career has been this trope. Yes. Um, but, yeah, like, yeah, so, like, when it happens here, it's like, oh, okay, this is this is just fun. Yeah. It, yeah, as you say, it doesn't happen often. I can think of, like, maybe three examples. Hmm. But when you see it, you see it from a mile away, and you're like, that guy's going to be the best character. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you're usually correct about that. Yep. Yeah, and... It, once again, it's really helped by the fact that, like, Tom's voice actor is just terrible in this game. <laughs> he might legit be the worst voice actor in this game. <laughs> and, like, but when he like, gives you like, just, like, a matter-of-fact, just, like, straight answer, like, Tom, I need to find out who could read th- this Chinese script. He's like, try asking Chinese about the Chinese. <laughs> it's like, no shit, Tom. <laughs> Thanks. Oh. Oh. But it also then helps Rio's characterization that he's like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, great job, Rio. Can't great. believe. Oh, man. Oh, man. It's a good thing you're concentrating on karate, man. I Maybe dropping out of school was a good idea. Or maybe yeah. it was a bad idea. I can't decide at this point. <laughs> Unclear. It might not have been helping you anyway. It might not have been. You know, you got to 18, and this is as far as it got you, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you'll be fine. <laughs> so, Ryo, like, eventually discovers that Landy is heading to Hong Kong in, in China. And Ryo decides he needs to head to China to confront Landy and get his revenge. I don't know how Ryo thinks this is going to end for him, but, you know... We've already established he might not be the smartest boy in Japan. Yeah, he he's driven more by justice and morality than common sense and pragmatism, so... Mm-hmm. All right, man. Yeah, you do you. Now, Ryo's going to prove his his smarts and his lack of pragmatism, because he's going to use all of his money. Uh, very specifically, he's going to use all of Fukusan's money. Ah, okay. Because Fukusan's like, all right, I'm cool with your revenge plot. Here's my money. Uh-huh. He buys a ticket to Hong Kong and is immediately scammed. Great. Yep. Awesome. He then beats up the scammers, gets a real ticket, only to have a weird gremlin man show up and eat said ticket. Ah. This gremlin's name is Chai. Get used to Chai. He's going to show up a lot. Chai literally looks like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. A fact that is funny, given that this came out two years before the first Lord of the Rings movie. Yep. He wears tattered clothes, appears to have a spinal condition causing him to be constantly slumped over, and basically walks on all fours. He speaks erratically to the point of being difficult to understand, but also in general thinks incredibly highly of himself. Now, what we do learn about him is two things. Like, most of his history is shrouded in mystery, but we know that he works for the Chiyu Men, a triad group that Lan Di is part of. And that he's also weirdly quick and powerful, like he's just a hell of a fighter, and he just beats Ryo up. (laughs) <laughs> hmm. Yeah, Fukusan shows up and like saves the day and like drags him out of there, and Rio has to recover for a couple days. It, it should be noted you can win this fight, but you're definitely supposed to lose it. Right. Um, but as Rio's recovering, 
he gets sad because he's basically out of leads, which he really didn't have any leads in the first place, but he decides he has no leads now because he can't afford a ticket to Hong Kong. That's when Ine-san shows up and he's like, she's like, hey, I had this letter. I didn't want to give it to you because I figured you'd do something stupid, but you're going to do something stupid. So here you go. Right. That's inevitable at this point. Yeah. So I figured I'd got to help you any way I can. And so he gets this letter and opens it up and it's written in ancient Chinese. Like literally not just like current Chinese, but like ancient Chinese Uh script. And he's like, I don't know what to do with this. Like he actually goes and shows some Chinese people this and they're like, you're going to have to find. (laughs) Right. A historian. Yeah. No one alive who writes like that anymore. Yeah. Definitely not. (laughs) So Rio eventually does get this translated. This is where Tom comes in. It's really Mm -hmm. great. And, like, he has to go to, like, these different, like, um, people called the Three Blades, which are, like, barbers and, like, you know, uh, butchers and whatnot. It's basically, (laughs) it's actually a really cool bit of Chinese history that's, like, given here of, like, oh, how, you know, like, like, some of the best barbers and some of the best butchers were also some of the best swordsmen. And when the emperor needed them, they would rise up and help him. And it's it's actually kind of a cool little thing that you get when you talk to him. It's actually rad. It is. The game is full of, like, really cool, small and rad stories like this that, uh-huh. like, having to sum up, like, the plot of, like, this, like, right. I, would, I would need, like, five hours to just tell you about all the different weird little stories that goes on in this. Right. Which, again, I think is sort of the point of the game is, like... It absolutely is. There is more to the world than you, you and your punching mm-hmm. thinks there is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, meeting, like, this, like, old man in a park who just teaches you a martial arts move and then tells you about why you use it, why using the balance in it to, like, actually live for power, like, what that actually means to a person and their personality. And it's like, wow, that's actually really cool. Yeah. Also completely missable. Mm -hmm. Like, all the scenes in this game Mm -hmm. uh, that aren't absolutely necessary. So he finally, Ryo finally gets this, like, translated, and he finds out it's from a man named Yuanda Zhu. And it's Yonda Zhu wrote this letter to uh, Hazuki Sensei saying, hey, someone's on their way to kill you. Uh, fortunately, that got there late. But he should seek the aid of a man by the name of Master Chen, who works at the harbor and also has a phone number to call. So Ryo calls this number and is told by a mysterious voice to go to warehouse number eight. So Ryo goes to Yokosuka Harbor, where he immediately runs into, I have this written down as the best character of the game. We've already established this is true. So let's right. call him the second best character of the game. Sure. Goro Mihashi. Goro is an 18-year-old delinquent who looks like he's 35. He is a stereotypical wannabe gangster, complete with a pompadour, mm. who basically talks like a surfer dude. Yo, dude! Oh, you. Seem a bit blue, my man? Got a problem? Then I'm your man! It's, it's a real choice, man. Yeah, all right. The, we already established the voice actor pool was not deep. It was not. It's really great because he gets like, like he basically gets like introduced every time of like beach rock after this scene, like playing mm. in the background. It's so good. <laughs> he's actually great. He's he's great. Yeah. When we first meet him, he's trying to rob somebody, and so Rio kicks his ass so hard he not only turns his life completely around. He basically becomes willing to take a bullet for Rio. Damn. Yeah. 
Uh, this is going to be a distressing trend in Shenmue, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, this literally happens three times in Shenmue 2, to the point where it's like the game's trying to teach you a lesson that if you just beat up random people in Hong Kong, you'll make many friends. <laughs> a lesson you should not take, by the no, way. No, unless you are in a kung fu movie, in which case, maybe. Yeah, maybe, actually. <laughs> you'll make a lot of friends. That's what fighting games and, well, kung fu movies have taught me. Yeah. So, Goro's whole thing is to help the player out if they can't figure out where to go next. He basically becomes a stand-in for Tom and Nozomi at this point. Mm. And in general, just helps Ryo deal with the gangsters and thugs he's going to have to fight with up until basically the end of the game. This mm-hmm. man is actually super useful. Mm. <laughs> like, crazy useful. Like, like from this point forward, in a way that you're like, I, can't, I did not expect this. Mm-hmm. Though a lot of his usefulness comes if you like you fail multiple things. Like you have to sneak in the warehouse number eight if you get caught multiple times. He'll actually show up and like I have a map of like where the guards go everywhere. <laughs> Here you right. go. Here's a flashlight, by the way. Mm-hmm. Like very very useful guy. So Rio sneaks into warehouse number eight, and after dropping a priceless china plate, meets Master Chen. Now he Master Chen and his son Guizong are basically the leaders of a legitimate business selling antiques and also a smuggling ring. Okay. Uh, Master Chen himself is a 60-year-old man dressed in traditional Chinese robes who speaks very, very softly. Uh, and he's, uh, his smuggling business is at odds with the Chi Yu men. Uh, he's a pretty stoic and gentle nature, unlike his son, Guizong, who's, on the other hand, a 30-year-old man dressed in a gray business suit who comes off as much more calculating and ruthless than his father. That being said, while they are both criminals, they are good guys and are your allies, basically, for the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. They're also master martial artists, as Ryo learns when he tries to fight Guizong, and it doesn't go so well. <laughs> now, Ryo learns from them that a local wharf gang known as the Mad Angels is connected to Landi's crime organization, the Chiyu Men. Ryo also learns that the mirror that was stolen by Landi is actually part of a set of two mirrors. And Ryo is further surprised when Master Chen's like, hey, did you bring the second mirror? And Ryo's like, what? What <laughs> second mirror? He's like, oh, Landy must have not known that your father had both. You should go find that. Mm. So after much investigation, he locates the second mirror underneath his father's dojo. Like he also finds like a photo of, like, um, of Hazuki Sensei with like two other men as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is like, man, I wonder who these people are. Probably going to learn about them in the second game. Anyways, mm-hmm. he finds this mirror called the Phoenix Mirror, which is a green jade mirror that is decorated with a phoenix. Uh, the dragon mirror is ex- basically the exact same thing. It's a green jade mirror that has a dragon on it. Uh-huh. So Master Chen, when this is brought back to Master Chen, he doesn't know too much about these mirrors other than what Yu- Yuanda Zhu told him once. That, quote, when the dragon and the phoenix meet... The gates of heaven and earth were open, and Chi Yu will resurrect itself on earth. End quote. A Chi Yu refers to a world devouring monster from Chinese folklore, by the way. Hmm. So Chen's not really sure what this actually what means or what will happen, but he knows that Lan Di needs these mirrors for one reason or another, and so he cannot have both. So Master Chen's fully on board of Rio's plan to go and get revenge, and he's like, How about I send my son along with you and you go to Hong Kong? Uh, you really shouldn't tra- like go via normal means. We probably should like sneak you in there so Landy no- doesn't know you're coming. Right. So I'm gonna get some transport like set up for you. In the meantime, you should probably go and check on what Landy's doing in the local harbor and why he's messing with the Mad Angels because he might actually still be in town. 
So in order to find him, we get to maybe the most infamous part of this game, I would say, mm. where Ryo gets a job as a forklift operator. Right. The forklift job is maybe the it's maybe my favorite part of this game because it combines <laughs> two things that I love about video games. Mm -hmm. Things that are just absolutely absurd and things that absolutely break the game. Ah. Absurd because one, Rio's just getting a job where you earn money just delivering crates. Right. And uh, every day you start you off with a forklift race for some reason. Uh, that, that is the weird part about this. Mm -hmm. The game-breaking part is that it, it's set up so it's supposed to occur over five days. And every day if you meet your quota, you get a raise of like, I think it's like 100 yen per crate. Uh-huh. Uh, now, this is supposed to be a finite amount that you're supposed to get because eventually, you know, you get, you're going to get fired from your job for investigating the Mad Angels and whatnot. And you're going to just right. become too hot to work. Right. And usually there are things that are going to prevent you from somehow breaking this. Except it's actually possible to break it on the third day, which means you could just work over and over in the same job and slowly raise how much money you're making to hmm. the point that you're earning something like, oh, I don't know, 20,000 yen per crate. <laughs> you could, you're going to become the only dock worker who becomes a millionaire within a month. It's crazy. Um, which uh, you could then use that money to buy capsule toys, I guess. I don't know. Sure. My point being is that he gets a job working with this. Like he meets like this guy um, whose name is Mark, who's like basically is being harassed by the bad angels and going to help him out investigating him. And after a few days of work, he eventually causes them enough trouble that the gang just kidnaps his friend Nozomi. Oh, great. Yeah, so Ryo has to borrow a motorcycle and makes his way to the harbor where he learns from the leader of the mad angels that if he wants Nozomi back, he needs to fight and injure Guizong. So Ryu then lures him to the harbor. But once like, Guizong arrives there, they go, why don't we just beat up the entirety of the Mad Angels gang, all 70 members, in just one giant fight that is easily the coolest thing about this game. Which I really a like that. Mm-hmm. I really like being, okay, now fight your friend. What if we just kick all your asses? Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's so good. Oh, it's like <laughs> a running battle just throughout the harbor. And, That's like, rad. It's so good that, like, when you beat the game, you go, like, do you just want to replay this sequence? Do yeah. You just do that? And the answer is absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Because the fighting in this game is actually really good. Once again, they're using that Virtua Fighter engine to its right. full extent. Right. So they do that. They rescue Nozomi. And upon defeating the gang leader, he reveals to Ryo that Van D's already gone. He's in Hong Kong now. So a few other things happen. Um, if you manage to find these scenes, which is no guarantee that you'll actually run into these scenes. You'll actually find out that Nozomi is going to be moving to Vancouver to go to university there. And mm -hmm. she's incredibly sad. She confesses her feelings to Rio, who's like, uh, but revenge. <laughs> it's really sad because Nozomi is like crying and carrying on and Rio's just still a robot. Mm. Like, ah, oh, buddy. Mm. So, like, that happens. We learn that Tom is going back to America, and he's very sad about that. Rio's actually somehow sadder about this. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably because he just got taught a really cool move. Probably. But regardless, it, like, eventually, like, he's going to get on a boat to go to China. So him and Guizong are about to get on the boat. When Chai shows up, he's like, I can't let you get on the boat. He enters Guizong. And then Ryo has to get into a fight with him, which he then punches him so hard he falls into the, into the harbor and seemingly drowns. 
So with that, Rio boards the boat to Hong Kong. Weezong has to stay behind. They basically recover, so he's going to have to do this all on his own. It's never established that uh, Rio knows Chinese, by the way. So <laughs> wonder how that's going to go. Anyways, he's instructed by Master Chen to seek out the help of a master of the Chinese martial arts located in Wan Chai named Li Xiao Tao. Rio acknowledges this, boards the boat, and travels to Hong Kong in pursuit of Lan Di, concluding the first chapter of Shenmue. So Shenmue is down and out. We've gotten that out of the way. Now it's time to move on to Shenmue 2, a game technically released for the Dreamcast, if you lived in Europe or Japan, if you lived in North America like I did, well, <laughs> you got to wait until the Xbox. Yep. Now, if I have to give my review of Shenmue 2, I don't, I think it's kind of a wash with Shenmue 1. On mm. one hand, there's a lot more of going point A to point B because they're going to fit in, I believe, three chapters mm -hmm. into one game. So that's kind of good. And they're not going to really like show you off to different parts of Hong Kong and into the Chinese countryside rather quickly. Hmm. Uh, so that's kind of nice. It actually makes the pacing of the story go quite a bit better. Right. On, on the other hand, it does remove a lot of the charm from Shenmue 1. On the other right. hand, the arcade in there, they subbed out Hang On for OutRun. So you have OutRun and Space Area in this game. So it's a better arcade experience overall. Right. Fair enough. So that's my review of Shenmue 2. So Shenmue 2, or Chapter 3 of Yu Suzuki's trilogy, or uh, Saga, I should say, uh, begins on now February 23rd, 1987. I am honestly surprised that you did not point out that we somehow skipped Chapter 2. I, I was... <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, the, the entire concept of these chapters is so baffling to me that I... I'm just sort of throwing up my hands with it. <laughs> Honestly, that's fair. <laughs> but yeah, what, what happened to Chapter 2? So Chapter 2 takes place on the boat. Okay. Is that the start of the game? Nope. Is, is that it, the it, end of the first game? Nope. <laughs> so funny thing about the boat trip, it was supposed to be in Shenmue 2, but they cut it for time. Um, ah. There is an unlockable comic that you can get in Shenmue 2. That explains what happened. To explain what happened, basically, Chai shows up, he gets kicked into the ocean, and then Ryo ends up in Hong Kong. Congratulations, that was chapter two of Shenmue. Ah, okay. Yep, saved you some time. Yeah, okay, fair enough. That that definitely could have been, like, the opening of the game, but... Mm -hmm. yeah. Whatever, it didn't need to be a chapter. It didn't need to be a chapter at all, although funnily enough, because of this, Chai's not going to show up in Shenmue 2 at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, what, what can you do? Yeah. So, the third chapter of the saga begins when Ryo arrives in Hong Kong in order to locate Master Li Xiao Tao. But, um, he is almost immediately, like, just robbed of all of his belongings by a boy named Wong. Except for, thankfully, the Phoenix Mirror. But, like, okay. yeah, all your money is stolen. And the whole idea with this game is actually you're supposed to sell all your capsule toys and get money that way. Or else do an incredibly boring QTE sequence where you work a job. Right. Yeah. Um, once again, if you're playing on the Xbox version, I hope you like QTEs. Right. Because it, it, does it, like, import your save data from the first one? It does, yeah. Oh, neat. Yeah, but it's yeah, really if neat. But, yeah, if you've... If you've transferred to xbox then yeah you don't get to do that 
Uh, and um, you're going to have a rent in this game. So uh, mm, you, uh, you, you need to earn money. They probably just should have shoved an arbitrary number of capsule toys into your inventory. They should have, yeah. Just you randomly have three Sonics and a Tails in there. There yeah. you go. Make do with it. And they're not going to do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we were searching for this martial arts master while also searching for Yuan De Zhu. The martial arts letter, uh, martial arts expert who sent uh, his father that letter warning of his impending murder. Mm-hmm. So shortly ab- after arriving, Rio meets Joy. Joy is a young woman with long orange hair, just bright orange, mm-hmm. uh, basically constantly wearing a bikini top and riding a motorcycle. Her personality is brash and uncaring. Watch where you're going, you punk! That goes for you, too, barging into people like that. You must be Japanese. Yes. Watch out! Here in Hong Kong, you can easily get run over! And by uncaring, I mean she cares very deeply about Ryo's well-being. And then Ryo's like, I don't really need your help. She's like, you suck. Anyways, later! (laughs) Peel out on motorcycle. She's gonna show up various times, just be like, hey! You should do this thing. And Rio's like, I don't need your help. Peel out on motorcycle later. (laughs) So after a difficult search and learning things um, about this particular martial arts master, he finally ends up meeting Master Li Xiao Tao and the master of the Man Mood Temple. Now, this person is actually a woman by the name of Zhu Ying. Now, she is a uh, beautiful young woman who is very, very stern and really thinks the idea of going after revenge and just coming to a country whose language you don't know uh, is probably a really stupid idea. Oh, yeah, fair enough. And so she's like, I'm not going to help you out. This is stupid. You're stupid. If you want to stay in my room for a few days, you can, but then you need to leave. So Rio's like, uh, okay, can, can you can you give me a job? She's like, fine, move books or something. I don't know. Go away. <laughs> She is going to monitor Rio's progress as he goes and throughout the game and like will continue to like meet with him and be like, okay, let's maybe show me your skills. If you can hit me, then maybe I'll actually help you out. Oh, you can't hit me. Get better scrub. Go away. <laughs> so after a meeting with various people, Rio discovers another individual who may be able to assist him in locating Landy. Wu Ying Ren. Now, Ren is gonna be basically Rio's best friend. A fact that is going to be a little surprising as we go through Shenmue 2. He is the leader of the gang called The Heavens. Uh, he's a 19-year-old man. Uh, the Heavens are a gang that's engaged in various illegal activities. Mostly mm. petty robbery. Now, he is a uh, Chinese man who wears a white bandana, a blue open Chinese shirt, and basically he's a bit sarcastic and not overly serious unless money is involved in which case he's quickly becomes all business <laughs> a kid seeking revenge you talk like a grown man but i smell money involved mm. uh, he's also just pretty much all about money because he probably would sell you up the river if you would earn him five dollars <laughs> that being said he does have some sort of honor to them to himself and like he's very loyal to the members of his gang uh, Wong, who's this little boy uh, who robs you at the start of the game, like holds Ren in like very high regard. He, he thinks of him as his brother. Mm-hmm. And once again, he's eventually going to become Rio's best friend, insisting him in the search for Londi. 
alongside Joy. He's also uh, friends with Joy for one reason or another. So, uh, eventually, like, he real like, goes to uh, Beverly Hills Wharf and, like, fights a bunch of the members of the Heavens who keep just ambushing him until Wong's like, here, just hold on to this lighter that has our logo on it. They'll leave you alone. <laughs> and we're like, oh, you have our lighter? Great. And, like, Rio's like, yeah, I'm, we're cool. Man. <laughs> Can I speak to Ren? It's like, if you give us $500, sure. And Rio's uh. like, uh, okay. So he gives him $500 and goes to meet Ren, who immediately is, like, trying to get under his skin and whatnot. And, like, but eventually he's like, all right, I'll help you. And by help him, I mean, he's going to try to stab him? Mm. Which Rio's going to manage to avoid all these attacks. And Ren's just like, all right, I'm impressed. All right, sure, I'll help you out. Why not? I'll be fine, Yolanda Zoo. Now, he's like, come with me. Come with me. He's, he's this way. Mm-hmm. And he goes and he like spots like, oh, hey, there's a rival gang that's um, like doing a drug deal. And uh, Ren's like, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Yolanda Zoo's there. Just give me one second. Turns off the lights, robs him blind, turns back on the lights, pins it all on Rio, runs. <laughs> <laughs> Rio's like, oh, all right, fine. So he beats them all up. He runs away. Uh, he runs into Ren, chases them down. They get into a fight. He accidentally drops the Phoenix mirror, and Ren's like, oh, what's that? And Rio just tells them all about it. Tells them about Landy. Tells them about how he's trying to get revenge. And Ren's like, that is rad. I'm going to actually help you for real this time. Not only because I'm down for revenge, but also Landy's a member of the Chiyu men, which means he probably has a lot of money, and I could rob him. This is going to be a great plan. Yeah, that, hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It feels like maybe more heat than you want, but okay. Ren and Rio are going to be perfect for each other because they're both kind of dumb with their plans. <laughs> but they're going to just kind of magic their way through life in a way that's going to somehow work out. Right. They just are both very good at martial arts. So Ren tells Rio that Yuanda Zhu is in Kowloon. And so that's where we move on to chapter four. Like we leave. I guess we technically don't leave Hong Kong. We leave like downtown Hong Kong and we go to right. the Kowloon Walled City. A really cool place that doesn't exist anymore. Are, uh, you, are you familiar with the Walled City at all? I'm not, no. Kowloon Walled City is a really cool place that uh, was demolished in, I believe, roughly around 1993. Basically, imagine like Hong Kong, how dense it mm-hmm. is. And then somebody said, what if we just took a part of Hong Kong and made it even more dense, basically built a giant wall around it, like basically made all the buildings, all skyscrapers somehow connect to each other. Huh. And like just packed as many people in there as possible. Like, Why is, did they do this? So it is on the site of an old Chinese fortress that was like a walled fortress. And uh-huh. I, it was also like a slum as well. So basically... Okay. Where people went to live there, and in order to pack in all those people, they just build buildings closer and closer together, and until it was just like, man, yeah, we just have a ton of people in there. In a way, right. that if anything ever went wrong here, they would all die, which is part of the reason why they were all relocated. And it was bulldozed and made yeah, apart. okay, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really really cool. There's a lot of bars in uh, Japan that actually have their that actually have inspiration that is drawn from that and have like decorations mm. and like a layout that's similar to that. Mm-hmm. It's really, really neat. Um, it's also when you ever see like a lot of like cyberpunk of like uh, like Chinese cities and whatnot, they mm, mm-hmm. borrow from Kowloon Wall City. Okay, yeah. Like I'm thinking about the 
the city from Deus Ex Human Revolution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is gotcha. 100% based on that. So, Rio and Ren go to meet with Zoo, only to find out it's a trap. The Yellow Heads organization, which is a rival organization to Ren's, and uh, also the people that he robbed earlier, mm-hmm. found out they're after Zoo, and basically beat him to the bunch. They kidnap Zoo, they beat them up, abduct them on behalf of the Chiyu men, and uh, we're like, yeah, you're just gonna just hang out here. We're gonna handcuff you together. Have fun with that. Anyways, they managed to break out while still handcuffed together. And in a mm-hmm. QTE heavy sequence that goes on forever, they basically run throughout the Kowloon walled city, right. like, avoiding like gang members and whatnot. Like they managed to like run into the leader, one of the leaders of the Yellow Heads, a man named Yuan, and like he's like just like drinking tea in his room and enjoying his knife collection. He's mm-hmm. like, oh hi, ah, gets beaten up. <laughs> they run out. They run into Wong, who like uh, picks the lock on the handcuffs. And Joy's also there too. She's being concerned. Sure. So they're like, okay, well, we need to find Zoo. And I think we know where he is. I think he's in the Yellowhead's headquarters, which is in this office building that's 40 stories tall. Mm. We should sneak in there and beat everyone up. <laughs> yeah. And I don't remember. Which one of the two idiots suggests this? But the other is on board with it. So that's exactly what they're going to do. So they sneak in through the sewers. They start fighting their way through the all 40 floors. Uh, Wong and Joy somehow get kidnapped during this time. Sure. And uh, basically, Ren decides, like, hey, I'm going to hold off everybody. Go up to the 40th floor and get Zoo. So up on the 40th floor, like, they, um, Rio manages to rescue uh, Joy and Wong. Or actually, rescues Joy. Wong gets dragged off to the roof, so he makes his way up there. And on the roof, he finds Don New, the leader of the Yellowheads, basically a giant mammoth man. Like, looks like he's like 500 pounds, incredibly tall, yet moves incredibly nimbly. He's basically the last boss of this game. Mm. And like, they get into a big old giant fight, and he manages to defeat him, like using a move that he like learned earlier in Hong Kong. And while he's there, he sees the helicopter. T- take off and hanging off the side of the helicopter on the ladder is Landy <laughs> who just stares at Rio as he flies off hanging <laughs> onto the ladder. <laughs> this is the only time we see Landy. And if I remember correctly, he has no voice lines in this entire game. I think that's correct. Yep. <laughs> so it's like, all right, well, so much for that, I guess. Then they go back to Ren's hideout with you on the zoo. Uh, zoo being, he's like this older Chinese man, uh, he provides Rio with some crucial information regarding the true purpose of the dragon in Phoenix Mirrors. He also tells him that Landy's real name is Long Soon Zhao, and his father, Su Ming Zhao, was killed by Rio's father. He then immediately backpedals from this and says, well, maybe that didn't happen, but uh, regardless, Landy's dad is dead, and he blamed Rio for it, or Rio's mm-hmm. dad for it. Uh, he also reveals that, like, the photo that you got of um, Rio's dad when he was younger, that, like, had like a Chinese, two Chinese men hanging out. Like mm-hmm. one of them was him, um, and the other was Su Ming Zhao. So they were all friends at one point before, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> guess somebody had to die or something. I don't know. Something, yeah. He also reveals that the mirrors will lead to the resurrection of an ancient order known as the Qing Dynasty. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Right. That's a little left field. It's a little left field, and it's also like, do you mean the literal Qing dynasty? Yeah, like the, the the founding dynasty of China? Yeah, that, or do you mean 
something else. Yeah. He doesn't elaborate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he does tell him, though, that Ryo needs to continue his search in Bailu Village, a remote Guilin. He then parts ways with Ren, Wong, and Joy, continuing his journey and heading for the same destination as Landi. So now we move on to Chapter 5, which is really just a chapter of a lot of walking and talking. Mm-hmm. It takes place in Guilin. Now, Guilin is a town that is in northwest of Hong Kong in Gangji province. Um, it's mostly rural, and I, I imagine you probably haven't really heard of this place. No, I don't think so. I think you would probably recognize it. In fact, I think a lot of people would recognize this place mm-hmm. if you saw pictures of it, because it's instantly recognizable. It has a very interesting type of topography that is China's very well known for as the okay. limestone karst hills. Mm. Yeah, you know, those hills that you see in Dragon Ball that are just like shut up in the sky. And yeah, like yeah. Green and whatnot. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. 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 Makes perfect sense that you're going here because it's like right. that is the most China possible place you can go. Mm-hmm. So Ryo's just kind of walking through the countryside when shortly after arriving, he gets caught in a driving rainstorm and he sees a young girl trying to rescue a white deer from drowning in a nearby river. She is not very successful at this because the river is like overflowing and raging. So mm-hmm. Ryo jumps in after her. He is equally not very successful at this. <laughs> and they both almost drowned before washing up on the side of the river. Ryo then asks her why he wouldn't let go of the deer. And she tells him that the white deer is her village's guardian. And she introduces himself, herself as Shenhua Ling. So Shenhua, we didn't really mention this in chapter one, but when Ryo goes to sleep on occasion, he just dreams of this random Chinese woman. Oh, okay. This is her. Okay. Yeah, uh, she is going to be basically the deuterologist to this series, which uh, makes it really funny that she gets introduced at the end of the second game. Yeah. So Shenhua is a 16-year-old orphan who, after her parents died, came to live with her now stepfather, Yu Shen Yuan, on the outskirts of Bailu Village. She is an incredibly compassionate woman, particularly towards animals, and in general has a strong connection to nature and basically children. Kind of like Rio. Mm-hmm. That being said, she has led a very sheltered life. For instance, as they're like walking to her village, uh, Rio tells her he's from Japan, and she has absolutely no idea what that is. Oh. Oh, yeah. that's, that's very sheltered. Oh, yes. Yeah. She has knows nothing outside of China. Like she doesn't know I what see. a Canada is. Um, <laughs> she's also like, but she is also like naturally like, very curious. She like wants to learn all about it, mm-hmm. and she's not one who takes no for an answer. And what I mean by that is that this is actually not in the second game. This is in the third game. But uh-huh. when she asked Rio about like why the shopping district in his hometown is called Dubuida, Rio just tells her that it's been named for that as long as he can remember. It's it's like mm-hmm. how I really don't know why you know. Minneapolis is called that in Minnesota. Right. Um, I could take some guesses, but I don't really know. And she's like, how can you not know that? How can you not know something about your home? It's your home. Mm-hmm. And Rio's just like, I'm just, it's very big and there's a lot of names and stuff. I don't know. So like, that's just kind of how she is. So on the way, they converse and it's revealed that Shenhua's family is connected with the legacy of the dragon and Phoenix Mirrors. Shenhua's stepfather is a stonemason, and apparently it was his family that originally forged the mirrors. Ryo also talks about his, like, Japan and whatnot, his family and friends, including Ozomi, and so they just kind of get along and whatnot in their own little awkward way. 
They eventually reach her home, where they find a giant cherry tree where Shenhua was found as a baby. This tree is called Shenmu. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I believe it's also implied that the cherry tree that um, is in Ryo's home is a sapling that was taken from this tree. I okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's really great. Shenhua, by the way, is named for the flowers that grow at the base of the tree. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they're really trying to set up that these two are connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I I got that. Um. Okay. So is this the girl on the box art? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. we are at the end of the second game. About at this point. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. She is on the box for Shenmue 1. Her theme song is in the game of Shenmue 1 as a cassette that you can find. Mm. She shows up in dreams, doesn't speak, and then you barely actually learn anything about her until you get to the very end. Okay, I see. I it, understand. I... It, it is funny as hell, man. It's funny as hell. This, once again, this game's story... Actually, mm-hmm. it has a good point A to point B until you get to chapter five, and then it's just like, listen, man, we got some, we got some revelations, and uh-huh. we're gonna finally introduce you to the other protagonist. Right, right. We're hey, welcome to the end of the second game where we get to the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're gonna actually finally get you on this journey for realsies. I hope you're willing to wait roughly eighteen years. <laughs> <laughs> technically 19 so yeah it's great it's great so they spend the night at her house and then the next morning shenwa's like hey i gotta thank you for saving my life they Mm -hmm. really didn't but whatever i'm gonna take you to the stone quarry the outskirts of the village to meet my father so you can learn more about the mirror so they go there and they find that he's just gone man he's just nowhere to be found but what they do find in there is a weird sword like a weird ancient chinese sword Mm-hmm. And a note from Shenhua's father that reads, quote, Dear Shenhua, my work is done. The phoenix entrusted to our people is now complete. The time of destiny has come. Shenhua, go with the one who holds the phoenix and find the proof. Yield yourself to the one and go together. I shall give you the family treasure, the sword of the seven stars. Think of the sword as a part of me and keep it with you. I shall always watch over you. End quote. So yeah, this dude sounds real dead right now. Yep. And also, I guess he just didn't want to actually bother to explain what the proof that you were supposed to find is, what mm-hmm. we're supposed to be doing at all. What's uh, supposed to be happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like, you found a dude that has the Phoenix Mirror? Hang out with him. He's probably okay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, pre- mm-hmm. it's pretty great, because it's like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks, Dad. That's useful. Okay. So they immediately find a, a pedestal that they can set the sword into, which mm-hmm. once they do, it causes the sword to glow, the ground to okay. shake, and for another pedestal to rise that allows Ryo to set the phoenix mirror into it. And once he does, the sword just begins to float. Okay. There's a floaty mm-hmm. sword now, and it sparkles. Okay. And then it shoots a laser beam that goes into a room that like basically opens up like a secret room that when they walk in there... Causes all the lanterns just to catch on fire, all the ropes in there to catch on fire. There's a lot of fire. Uh-huh. And it reveals two giant recreations of the Phoenix and Dragon Mirrors that presumably Shenhua's father had carved. Okay. Shenhua then recites, 
quote, from a distant land in the east, from across the sea, he shall appear. He does not know the strength hidden within him, the strength that would destroy him, the strength that would fulfill his wishes. When he is ready, he shall seek me out, and we shall brave together the rocky path. I shall wait. This encounter has been my destiny since ancient times. A dragon shall emerge from the earth, and dark clouds shall scare the heavens. A phoenix shall descend from above. Its wings will create a purple wind. In the midst of pitch black night, a morning star shall glisten alone. End quote. Rio's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and Shenwa's like, yeah, that's just an ancient poem that everyone in my village knows and has been reciting since ancient times. Uh-huh. That yeah. is hilariously specific to our circumstance. <laughs> and with that, Rio goes, the man who holds the phoenix. And then Shenwa and Rio just stare at the mirror. And then the game ends. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> and that, Alex, is what Shenmue fans had to experience and had to sit with as they waited for Shenmue 3, a game that was totally going to come out, y'all, any day now. Mm-hmm. And by come out, I mean it's going to sell negative five copies for the Xbox. And Sega's going to go, how about we don't do that? <laughs> And so with that, Yu Suzuki basically was just like, well, what am I going to do? I guess I'll continue doing like Virtua Fighter games. (laughs) 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 Now, to be fair, he would do two more and a bunch of mobile games. Yeah. Before, you know, leaving the company to form his own company. Um, I think it's just literally called Wise. I like to call it Ease because Uh of the game series, but I'm pretty sure that's not correct. And, uh... Yeah, basically, people are like, well, is Shenmue going to happen? Maybe. I don't know. We're going to learn all about how this could be multiple attempts to finish this series over the next 18 years. Yep. But with that, we just are left with this cliffhanger that would never be solved until Shenmue 3 would come out in, I believe, 2020. But that's going to be for next time, Alex. Mm-hmm. As we talk yep. about the development history of Shenmue 3, I... Well, boy, is it a story, man. Oh, boy. Oh, Um, boy. I hope you like talking about Korean MMOs that never happened. Oh, God. (laughs) Alex, how you feeling? I... I don't know. So this... This is... Even just listening to this, this is a fascinating series. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I understand what he's trying to do. And I Mm -hmm. understand why some things about it work and some things don't. Mm Mm-hmm. so I, I completely understand why Shinbu 1 is the way it is. Yeah, I bet. And in a weird way, it's honestly kind of strange that Shinbu 2 isn't more like the first one. Hmm. It, it's almost weird how much stuff does happen in Shinbu 2. Yeah, there's a constant point A to point B. There's constant like events that happen. Right. And hmm. it... You know, in one way, it makes it it makes a more compelling experience, mm. but it also kind of feels like it would detract a little bit from what made Shinbu One interesting in the way that it was. Oh, yeah, it absolutely does. Like the the level of care that goes into honestly the three, actually four areas that you are allowed to explore in Shenmue. There's only really four areas that you explore in Shenmue. Right. Like, the amount of, like, ridiculous care that went into that mm-hmm. to make it alive. 
right. is makes it incredibly compelling and fun to go through that. Yeah. That doesn't quite exist to the same level in Shenmue 2. And it's clear because, like, they got done with Shenmue 1. They developed Shenmue 2 mostly at the same time, but it was clear that they're like, okay, we don't really have a budget for this anymore. You right. need to get this done, get this figured out, and get this out. And, okay, let's go ahead and start compressing everything because it's very clear they're not going to give me 16 games to do all right. this. Right. And, like, in a, in, a, in a way, I feel like the answer would have been less of, like, compress and more of cut yeah just like remove if you're not going to get 16 games that means it would probably be better not to try and do 16 places yeah agreed because like it, it feels very much based on shenmue one like that his idea was like each game will be a different place that you go to and do this thing oh yeah absolutely yeah, and that's very clear by the chapters where one's yeah, one's in Hong Kong proper, the other's in Kowloon, the right. other's in Bailu. Yeah. And like I feel like sixteen games is too much to try and do. Mm-hmm. It's it's way too ambitious. And it is not the way that writing and creativity works, you're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I feel like when the word comes down that no, you're not gonna get sixteen games to do this. Again, like, I would rather reduce it down to, like, okay, then just start cutting places out. Compress events into one area. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think the first game's attitude of, like, this is the place that you are. These are the people that are around you. And you have to be here and live with these people and understand their story and learn from them mm-hmm. is very interesting it is yeah this game shenmue one in particular really succeeds at like making you care about the random people that you run into right like once again there's like a really good sequence where like you just meet an old man in a park who just teaches you a martial arts move and teaches you the meaning behind it and the meaning Mm -hmm. behind the power of your stance and whatnot that's like really cool right or, like, there's, like, a bunch of, like, random, like, little cutscenes that'll happen with, like, the kids as you're doing investigations that, once again, are incredibly dependent on time and day and what specific day you find them on. So, there's actually a good chance if you play this game, you're not going to ever see those. Mm-hmm. Or, um, I actually cut this out because I was worried that this would go on for a little too long. But, like, at the very beginning of the game, if you wander around the certain parts of Rio's home... You'll have like flashbacks to his childhood growing up and how he like interacted with his dad that like show him as like being stern, but very caring that are Mm -hmm. very effective. Right. That are also totally missable. Yeah. And and that's an interesting element of storytelling in video games that you're allowed to one, have that take time. You don't need to rattle through it the way you do in like movies or television. Mm hmm. But also that can be sort of optional and can be responsive to the decisions you make in playing the game. Yeah. That if you if you have an interest in this and you go seek it out, you'll get that information. If you don't pursue it, you won't get it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that's something like it's something I love about the first Shenmue. Like I, I sometimes mm-hmm. have a little bit of mixed feelings about some of those cutscenes. Like I right. kind of wish they were included, like a lot of the Nozomi stuff, for instance. Uh-huh. But, like, yeah, no, it rewards curiosity. Right. And I think particularly a lot of games nowadays don't really reward curiosity in the same way. Yeah, no, I I definitely think so. And, like, probably the 
better balances, they need stronger hooks for those. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily to force you to see them, but give you more clear indicators of what to do to get to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The other thing, though, I think in this, it sounds like it kind of affects both of them, is if you know that you're going to be breaking your story into multiple games, you need to have very strong story arcs for each game on its own. Um, like each game sort of needs to follow an independent story structure that then coalesces into a greater whole. Yeah. And the, the delineators for these stories feel kind of arbitrary. They do. Yeah. I think this is actually a worse problem in Shenmue 2, oddly enough. Mm -hmm. Because Shenmue 1 at least introduces Chai and then at the end it's, yeah, you're about to get on the boat. You have to fight Chai one last time. He's threatening your friends. And like, yeah, that makes sense to have that end there. Okay, you get on the boat. There we go. Yeah. Shembo 2 is like, okay, you fight the um, the gang leader right at the end. You see Landy, he flies off, and it's like, all right, well, you still have um, this little epilogue sequence, I guess. Right. Where we just got to show you these giant mirrors, which I, I guess you could say like, okay, well, that could be just like a good place to end the game, but it, it, it's also just sort of a little... It's, it's a little bit weird. It's like they had the ending for one game there. And then they're like, oh, but we don't we can't make this third game where it's just you wandering around a village, or at least for not for another 19 years. Right. So we're just going to throw this in here right at the end. Yeah, it's. Yeah. And, and, but, and then it also that sequence is where we introduce what is apparently a very critical character to the entire series. Mm hmm. But like that is probably the weirdest part to me. Yeah. Where it, it is like we we took two game we spent two games before actually giving you the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's an interesting choice. It's it's an interesting choice that's one hundred percent in line with everything Shenmue does. Yeah, and like I don't know how this would have worked out, but I feel like I would have started Chapter Five right after the boat. Hmm. Like, rather than go straight to Hong Kong, maybe get to her then? Yeah, and then maybe you go to Hong Kong together, and then that's when you have Hong Kong adventures and meet up with Rand yeah. and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it, it just, it feels strange to take so long to get to her if she's supposed to be that pivotal. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say the Shenmue 3 does a better job of, like, actually having her hang out with you and do things. Right. But, yeah, the... To, to not do that in Shenmue 2 is just, once again, such a strange decision. Yeah, it's it's very weird. Because, again, having never played it, having only seen, like, clips of it and the box art of it stuff, I always assumed she was, like, a major part of the game. Because I was like, okay, this is clearly an important character to the story. Yeah, and she gets maybe, like, a minute of screen time. Yeah, and it's, it's like, silent. yes, she is, but she she's in dreams. Come mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Dreams that are really never really commented on much, by right. the way. Yeah. You'd figure Ryo would be like, oh, you were in my dreams. That's weird. No, not at all. No right. acknowledgement. And like, I, I, I could go on and on about, oh, you should have written your story this way. And like that, whatever. There's a thousand ways you can write any story. Mm. I guess the more interesting thing to me is that it is, it is clearly, it is a very strong vision, but it is also overambitious and does not work with constraints well. No, it does not. 
it it absolutely does not uh, something that's going to become quite apparent in Shenmue three. Let me yeah. assure you, in so many different ways. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a that's a perfect way to sum up Shenmue two, a game that had constraints placed upon it, and unfortunately, Yu Suzuki could not wiggle his way out of them. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. I think that's probably a good point to to wrap all of this up. Because boy, we I could. I don't know about you, Alex. I could talk about random things in Shenmue and Shenmue 2 for like the next three hours. I believe it. And honestly, I would probably be very interested to hear them because they, whether this is a good series or not is almost an irrelevant question. Yeah. It is a fascinating series and there is no denying that. Exactly. There's a reason why I said last episode, I, I think I said this last episode anyways, is that mm-hmm. I, I just want somebody to give Yu Suzuki $300 million, just like finish mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I want to see where you're going to go with this because, boy, the man's got some ideas. and He sure does. Good or bad, they are at least interesting. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you. I could... Oh, man. Like, the fact that I didn't talk about Joy for much more than, like, two minutes. <laughs> right. Despite the fact that she is a more prominent character than the other protagonist. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, that should tell you everything you need to know, but... But yeah, I think that would be, this is a good time to, to end it. So with that being said, if you enjoy episodes like this, you should go to ftp.podbean.com or search for Fallen Through Potholes on your podcast service of choice. Uh, leave us a review and subscribe to the feed. We would really appreciate that feedback. Let us know if we're doing a good job. And of course, Alex, I appreciate you doing this with me as always. Of course. And with that, everybody, take care. Take care.